Hi, I'm John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the Public Policy This Week podcast. If you like what you hear on this show, please consider leaving us a review or telling a friend about us. Also, please consider subscribing so you'll receive a brand new edition of the show every time we make one available. We hope you find Public Policy This Week entertaining and informative, and thanks again for listening. Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, August 12th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Our program is dedicated to the honest, frank, and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we'll take a deep dive into the public policy issues, and we have guests on who are experts in the field. We're going to stay away from the politics of an issue as much as we can and instead concentrate on research, data-driven findings, and facts. That'll help us all to arrive at a smart, comprehensive, and integrative public policy solution to the shared challenges we face in society. For today's show, your host will be Rich Larson, the news director at KYMN Radio here in Northfield. And the uh, gentleman sitting across the desk from me is Joe Moravchik. Joe is a retired police officer, adjunct faculty in criminal justice, former candidate for the Minnesota House of Representatives, and a longtime coach and administrator for youth and high school athletic teams. Joe is also the son of a high school English teacher in Madison, Wisconsin, which is especially appropriate in light of today's topic. Public education is an important discussion we have at all levels of government, federal, state, and local. It is also a frequent discussion at dinner tables everywhere, all because of what is at stake for our society, considering that education is imperative to progress and stability in our economic and political systems, and it is imperative to individuals in our society as well, for personal develop, for personal development as we all try to establish and advance knowledge, skills, and habits to find our place in the world. Article 8, Section 1 of the Minnesota Constitution states, The stability of a Republican form of government depends mainly upon the intelligence of the people. Thus, now paraphrasing, it is a legislative duty to secure an efficient system of education for our public schools. That is absolutely correct, because democracy is dependent on a well-informed and educated electorate. We can all agree for that reason and many others that our kids need to be educated. And most of us can agree that well-trained professionals are the people to do that. But those well-trained professionals cost money, as do books, as does technology, as do school buildings. It all adds up, and it can add up quickly. Our public schools are funded with tax dollars. State general fund money from taxpayers and local property taxes. We have roughly 2,000 public schools in Minnesota, over 55,000 teachers, and about 900,000 K-12 students. The largest single expenditure in the state budget is for K-12 education. Because tens of billions of dollars are spent on education each year in Minnesota, and again, education is so vital to the success of our society, education spending is an important issue that many people have an interest in and state legislators can get downright contentious about. So... Joining us today to talk about our public schools and how to best pay for them is Northfield <coughs> Superintendent of Schools, Dr. Matt Hillman. Dr. Hillman grew up in the Finger Lakes region of New York State. He earned a bachelor's degree in history from St. John's University in New York City, a master's degree in education technology from Minnesota State University, and a doctorate in educational leadership from Minnesota State in Mankato. Dr. Hillman has over 25 years of public education experience as a teacher, coach, principal, dean of students, and director of human resources and technology. He will soon begin his seventh year as the superintendent of public schools in Northfield. 
Dr. Hillman has taught as adjunct faculty for education leadership courses at Concordia University in St. Paul, the University of Minnesota, and Minnesota State. Matt met his wife, Mary, when they were first-year teachers in Medalia. He and Mary have three children and live in Northfield. And just to round things out, Dr. Hillman is a passionate fan of uh, Minnesota Golden Gophers football, my beloved Minnesota Twins, and the St. John's Red Storm basketball team. Dr. Hillman, welcome. Thank you for joining us on Public Policy this week. It's my pleasure and just so grateful to KYMN you know, for taking the lead and bringing important topics like this through the Public Policy This Week show. It, of course, joins the other stable of outstanding programming like National Security This Week, yeah. uh, uh, Gordon Moore's legal sessions, and we just appreciate that KYMN takes this interest in not only informing the community but the world. Well, we're able to do these uh, do programs like this because we can get guests like you on to talk about Big East basketball. <laughs> well, who doesn't love to talk about Big East basketball? You might not be old enough, but I remember Dwayne the Pearl Washington and Mark Jackson and Chris Mullen and all those great teams. The and the coaches too, Massimino and Thompson and. Carlissimo, uh, yes. and of course, Carnaseca is the only one that really matters, right? But, <laughs> well, John Thompson matters. So when I was a kid, we only had the four channels growing up, but then ESPN introduces sports, and one of the first things they do is bring out Big East basketball. And growing up in southern Wisconsin, I became a fan of Big East basketball. You know, one of the moments that I remember um, of falling in love with not just college basketball, but basketball in general, I grew up about maybe two hours from Syracuse. And uh, for Big East fans, they might remember Dwayne Washington, the Pearl, yep. uh, hit a half-court shot to beat Boston College. And it was just this, I mean, mass eruption. Um, and that was when I'm like, this is pretty cool. And so <laughs> just I grew up watching the same thing and, and at St. John's when Malik Seeley, rest his soul, a former Minnesota Timberwolf who was tragically killed here in Minnesota, mm. probably in the prime of his career. You're going to make me um, cry. I miss Malik I mean, Malik Seeley was a great human being, and uh, I didn't know him personally, but he was really well-respected on campus. And you know, I, I like the reboot of Big East basketball, going back to those smaller basketball-only schools. The competition is intense. It's uh, the best conference in the country, in my humble but deadly accurate opinion. And uh, it's still a lot of fun to watch now. We can, and can watch every game. It's awesome. Yeah, growing up watching Marquette basketball, uh, Marquette, of course, is now part of that revamp uh, conference, and yeah, it's been a good thing for Milwaukee. Yeah, we, we should be careful because we could take the whole hour talking <laughs> could, Big East. We could so. do that, absolutely. So um, we do want to get going on this. Um, Dr. Hillman, before we get into the discussion about living, uh, about fixing any problems, I, I think it would be helpful to just to talk about the way school budgets are put together in Minnesota because they can, <clears throat> they can really be confusing for people who have not studied the system. Uh, Minnesota school budgets are segmented, segmented and compartmentalized and... You know, the funds are allocated to specific areas and they're highly regulated. So, Matt, can you please explain to us how to, how a typical Minnesota school district budget is set up? Yeah, so I, I think I'd go down the road of a couple of things to begin with. The first thing I think you need to know in any school district budget is the primary driver is, are, is student enrollment. So in Minnesota uh, K-12 public schools, student enrollment is the key factor because there are so many of the state and federal formulas that are generated that generate uh, income or uh, revenue based upon that count. And so this, there's all sorts of issues that you have if you have declining enrollment, which we'll talk about. That's the situation Northfield Public Schools is in right now. 
But you can also have issues if you have uh, expanding enrollment, especially if it's too quickly. And so that that student enrollment is a key part. And as we've talked about many times on this station, Rich, uh, school finance in Minnesota is highly regulated. So um, I'm just going to give a couple of examples uh, in order to move on. But the general fund, that's the one that we talk about the most. The general fund is the most flexible. Anything, Any dollars that we have in the general fund can basically be spent on any kind of good or service uh, contract. Um, so it, it can go for people. It can go for curriculum. It can go for buildings if you wanted it to. It's got the greatest flexibility. Um, you also have a, a capital budget, right? And the operating capital has some very, which is technically part of the general fund, but it has some very specific rules about what you can spend it on. And of course, then we have other funds that are completely separate. So for example, uh, the food service fund is uh, simply for how we feed students. And so that takes care of the purchasing of the food, the payment of the people who prepare and clean up after it. Uh, And then we can also think about community education. And something that I'm going to emphasize, especially at the end of the show, is that we really need to look at education in Minnesota as for in our public school system as E12, right? Because community education, of course, does great enrichment program for the yeah. communities, but it also is one of the drivers of early childhood education, which we know from the research of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve has a tremendous re- return on the investment. Mm-hmm. And so that's an example. You cannot really spend community ed money on general fund, you know, on K-12 items. You can spend general fund money on early childhood items, um, and then we could even talk about special education uh, uh, for hours as well, and we'll leave that there. We will get there, too, though. We were going to talk about special education today. Anyway, um, so as you just said, most of the funding um, a district receives comes from the state, um, and it, you know the funding is depending on the number of uh, students within the school district. There are several other factors that go into the ter- determination, though. The amount of funding um, is, is calculated by what they call the basic formula. Again... Can you explain to our listeners, uh, and we can give you a little more time to do this because I know it gets really complicated, um, what goes into the calculations of the basic formula? And in your opinion, is it a fair system? And what, if any, changes would you make in the way they set this up? So this is, a again, a situation where we use one word to describe an entire yeah. uh, funding mechanism. Yeah. So when we think about, when we use the term, most people, including myself, use the term the basic formula. Really what we're talking about is the general education formula. And uh, the biggest part of that, of course, is the basic education revenue. So that's the amount that each school gets for each weighted adjusted daily membership unit. So we talked about revenue before. Students in grades K through 8 count as 1.0 FTE or 1.0. And then as you get into high school, it it might be at 712 there that it goes to 1.2. The concept is that a student who is older uh, has different needs, right? There's Mm -hmm. additional expenses. So for example, we're not offering industrial arts uh, to our third graders, right? But we have a full wood shop. We have a full metal shop. Um, of course, the kind of art programming and music programming that you offer at the secondary level is more. So those students count as 1.2. So you get the basic education revenue, and, and for the 22-23 school year, it's going to be $6,863 per student. Okay. That's what everybody gets. That's the basic uh, education revenue. But the general education formula, which is most often what people refer to when they talk about the basic formula is actually made up of, are you ready? Okay. It's not one, it's not two, it's not 10, it's 14 Hmm. different potential components. And so we could spend an entire time talking about this. Now this goes to your question though. Um, 
I understand that it's we like to really boil things down in our mm-hmm. society, right? Mm-hmm. And we like to take the complex and we want to make it as simple as we can because we've all got a lot of competing things for our our brain power, right? And yes. so, right. but the issue is that I think that the challenge of Minnesota's general education formula is because it's attempting to make it fair. I'm not saying it is fair. I'm mm-hmm. saying it's attempting to make it fair. I'm going to give you a little bit of an example. So the basic ed revenue, that's what we talked about. That's the formula allowance. But it also provides some dollars for things like gifted and talented, right? So that's $13 per pupil to make sure that schools can serve those gifted and talented right. students in a, in a unique way. Um, we also go into things like having small schools revenue. So essentially schools under around 960 students, because obviously you still have to have a lot of the same kinds of things you might have in a school of 1,500 students. There's a small amount of money that can go to schools who qualify for that. Northfield Schools doesn't receive that, but I'm guessing Randolph probably does. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get to things like local optional revenue. That's something the board can choose to accept that revenue or not. There are things like sparsity revenue, because obviously in Minnesota, we have school districts of significant difference in geographic size. And so it's going to cost a lot more money for, for example, St. Louis County Public Schools, which is probably the largest geographic school district in the state, to be able to get their kids just to school. Yeah. And if you think about the amount of money that they get from the basic formula, yeah. that's not going to do it, right? right. So you, you get into things like uh, there's also a transportation sparsity revenue. There's transition revenue. Um, there's um, some other option uh, option adjustments. There's basic skills revenue, which is a compens- it's called the compensatory formula. The compensatory formula is really generated based on the number of students who qualify for free and or reduced lunch in Minnesota. And the concept is that in order to try to make things fair in some of those places where there's a larger number of uh, families who struggle with socioeconomic status to provide some additional services in those schools, English learner, all of these things, if, if I have a higher percentage of students who are English learners, we may need to provide some additional funding to be able to have specialized programming for those. So I think the challenge of Minnesota's general ed formula is that it's attempting to make it fair. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I have brought this question multiple times to graduate students who are I've taught in school finance. And I asked them, because everybody comes in with the same way, the formula should be simpler. I don't disagree. <laughs> no. You fix it for me. Right. To this point, no one has given me something that re- resembles a, a massive change. Um, reasonable people can disagree on certain parts of the formula, right? We can we can have philosophical discussions about various components of what is needed. But I do think that the Minnesota legislature over the years has attempted to try to make things uh, as fair as they reasonably could. Has the formula been more complicated than it is now? Uh, I don't, I can't say experience? that for sure. In my experience, it's been around the same. I, I would say the last, it's usually always adjusted in some way, shape, mm-hmm, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that it's as complicated as it's been in the 25 years that I've been uh, in public education. Now, this is a loaded question. I, I, I realize this, but what would, how would, Matt, how would you fix it? Yeah, I think that that's an interesting question because, um, so one of the things I think that would be helpful, uh, but I understand the challenges that the legislature faces in doing this, because as a, a school leader and a school administrator, I would struggle to do this as well um, if we're asked of me and my organization. I think we, we want to equate school finance to businesses, and I absolutely appreciate that. And we do run our school like mm-hmm. a business in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, a lot of businesses are, or other entities are able to look a little further out, right? We try to have a five-year plan. 
But when you never know what your biggest funder, which is about 70% of our funding comes from the state, when you can't predict beyond two years, that becomes a very difficult thing. So it would be ideal for us to see some kind of automatic escalator in that basic education revenue, that formula allowance. Mm -hmm. I understand that that's a complicated topic. Um, I understand that it it, uh, has reasonable differences of opinion on whether that should be the case or not. From my from my position of trying to be a good steward of taxpayer dollars and be able to have a long term, even just a five year plan, it would be helpful to have some kind of longer term commitment to knowing: um, Are we going to get some additional funds? Right. The basic formula, that general formula allowance, has not kept up with inflation. If you go back to 1991 and we compare it to the CPI, uh, you need about sixteen hundred dollars more on the formula to match the same buying power that the formula had in 1991. And I want to just take a moment, Rich, to share a couple of um, resources that I will give to you that you can publish on your website. Um, But the information that I'm sharing today, I've learned most of it through there's a thing called the Minnesota Guide for Funding Guide, a school funding guide for legislatures. Mm -hmm. It's a hundred and fifty page document. When I teach school finance, that's the textbook that I use. Um, there are two other organi- three other organizations that I suggest people look to for information. One is Schools for Equity and Education. That is really about making sure that um, we have more tax equalization. We'll get into that a little bit later in the program. And then also the Association for Metropolitan School Districts does some really good work along with the Minnesota School Boards Association. So as I'm talking today, some of the documents that I, I use all the time come from those four groups, and I just want to give them the proper credit. Great. Um. As negotiated and agreed upon by lawmakers in 2021, the school funding formula increases by 2.45% in 2022 and 2% in 2023. But as you just mentioned, inflation is at 8.5%. All of us feel that cost of goods and services are up. What are examples of how inflation is problematic for a school district? And how does the Northfield School District reconcile that difference between school funding and this inflation issue? Yeah, so um, uh, people who've listened to KYMN for several years and then to my predecessor, Dr. Chris Richardson, um, we've been very aware of inflation for a long time, and we have been talking about it. Since we've seen this uh, sharper rise over the last six months, everybody's talking about it now. Mm. We've been talking about inflation for years Mm. because, as I shared, the basic formula has not kept up with inflation. In fact, when we look going back all the way to 1991 and we look at the amount that the the percentage that the the general formula allowance has increased versus what the rate of inflation is i can count on one hand or maybe one hand and one other digit how many times the basic formula the general formula allowance increase has matched inflation Hmm. and so we've been well aware of inflation uh for a long time now the sharp rise in inflation that we've seen lately i'll give you two examples of how that had well i'll give you three examples The first is uh, we have a wonderful contract with a local transportation provider, Benjamin Bus. They provide our transportation services. Um, They are fair negotiators. Uh, They are look at this as much of a community service as they look at it as a business. Hmm. When we negotiated that contract a few years ago, we put a fuel escalation cause clause in, like is in everyone. And at the time, the fuel escalation cause didn't kick in until you got over two dollars and seventy five (laughs) cents a gallon. Who would have thought, right? I mean, people are like. So in the month of May alone, in 2022, we paid 12000 additional dollars in that fuel escalation part of our agreement with Benjamin Bus. That's mm-hmm. nothing that John and his team are doing. It's just the way it is, right? right. It's, the, it's the piece that we're... So that's one example. 
in the last uh, fiscal year versus the previous, we spent more than $200,000 more on natural gas than we had the previous year. That's how inflation affects schools. Mm -hmm. Our food service department, trying to be able to get the resources that they need to put together what are not the same lunches you remember. We're not talking about beefaroni, right? We're talking about some actually really good stuff that our schools provide, but the cost of food has dramatically increased. And so obviously those are things. And then when it comes to salary and benefits, school districts um, are limited. We can't just go out and raise our prices, right? Um, We don't have that ability to do that. But when we are looking at competition, especially for um, hourly paid employees, and uh, we are talking about very intense you know, positions working with students with special needs and things like that, and you get paid uh, 17 or $18 an hour to start versus some other uh, local businesses that are paying 20 or $25 an hour you know, to begin with, that's another way that inflation affects us. And how do we handle it? Um, we don't have the option to go into the... We, we have built a good fund balance over the years to be able to adjust for things like this. So our fund balance goal is 14%. That's 14% of our annual expenditures. And if we drop... We, we had to make $4.5 million worth of budget reductions uh, over the past year. For oh, oh, Last spring, we made about $4.5 million worth of budget adjustments over a two-year period. We wanted to phase those in because we've been good stewards. We have the money to be able to um, deficit spend for a period of time. We obviously can't do it forever. And when we cut, we cut people because 80%, I will, I will bet you a month's worth of Diet Coke, which is fairly significant, <laughs> that if you pull apart any school district's budget in Minnesota, around 80% to salary and benefits because we hire people to do good things for kids. And people yeah. say, well, just buy a little less textbook or buy a little less... That's not where the money is, right? I mean, right. Th- th- you can't right. solve your budget on that. Schools have tightened their belts long ago on those kinds of discretionary things. We are taught when you make cuts in Minnesota schools, you have to cut people. Yeah, it's, it's That's how it. we reconcile it, Joe. Go ahead, sir. I checked a couple of sources to look at the difference between per-student funding in districts throughout the state. I also looked at teacher-student ratios for class sizes district test scores, graduation rates, and the number of master's degrees for teachers in particular districts as it relates to student performance. A couple of questions. First, does more per-student funding directly relate to a better education for a student? And second question, should school districts receive financial rewards from the state for better student performance? Pros and cons of something like that. You got to be loving this. This is a, (laughs) and it is a complicated question. And I think that I just want to just take a step back to talk about those differences, right? Because every, as we mm-hmm. shared before, every school gets a flat dollar amount yeah. for every one of their students. And you might say, well, how can there be that range then? Well, we talked about something like transportation sparsity aid. And so yep. when you take a look at some of the districts, so like the the document that I'm looking here uh, that I've got from schools from equity and education, uh, the number one per student formula rank, if we just look at state services at $18,638 is uh, Pine Point School District, which is in northern Minnesota. It's only a K-6 district, right? They only serve yeah. students in K-6. through They have probably, it looked like, about 100 students or less. So when you do the math, right, that they get that much you right. know, money you know, per student. So I think that we have to also dig a little bit into why do districts have different funding. In some cases, like in Northfield, we're very blessed because one of the other ways that we've dealt with inflation over the years is we've had to go to the voters 
you know, for additional funding through mm. uh, uh, an operating levy. Mm-hmm. And we're very fortunate that time and time again, Northfield voters have helped us fill in that inflationary gap over the years to be able to maintain and expand the services uh, that they expect from us. So I think when we look at that range, it's a complicated question to say whether, you know, what kind of influence uh, does funding have on different districts and does it uh, equate to different outcomes? And the reason I say that it's complicated is it depends on what measurement we're using. So one of the things that I always subscribe to is the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so as a uh, even back when I was a YMCA employee in the Bronx, when I was mm-hmm. a St. John's undergraduate all the way through today, I know that not every student shows up every day in the same way, right? We do not work with widgets. We work with human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And so that part is how much do you need to spend on some of those? Ba- so there are some districts that do have to redirect some of their funding uh, to more what I would call core basic services, whether that be nutrition whether that be some mental health or some social work pieces, which we don't get nearly enough you know, dollars from the state for. So I think when all things are equal, public education is an outstanding value in our democracy. But we have to understand that no one comes in at the same place. All kids can learn. In fact, one of our core beliefs in Northfield Public Schools, it's one of our core performance expectations, is that we all believe that all kids can learn. They don't all learn at the same time or the same rate. And when I taught, um, I was a history, I was a social studies teacher who happened to get a job teaching at the beginning of the internet coming into schools. Hmm. I could turn on a computer, so I taught computer education Hmm. for eight years. (laughs) And I always thought, you know what? I really would have benefited from what I would call delayed results analysis. Because who cares if you could, you know, do a mail merge in my computer lab? That was easy. I'm there to help you. I wanted to see how did you go out and get a job in business and be able to bring that return on investment, you know, for that company. So even the measures that we have now, we welcome accountability. We welcome accountability. Whether we're rewarding for people for results, I think it depends on what results you know are you're looking at. Sometimes getting a student to be able to be basically proficient or even close to proficient, the growth that you've had versus someone who already had exceeded these state expectations, the amount of work and the amount of celebration that we have over that yes. could be even far more than a person who started at the 95th percentile maybe drop to the 90th percentile, but still is exceeding expectations. So that is a complicated question about what, what, first of all, what does reward mean? And second is, what do you reward folks for? And again, I understand that in all other aspects of society, we see signing bonuses, we see athletes, you know, who do very well, they get a large contract, and we want to try to apply some of those things to public service. It, it just isn't totally analogous though i absolutely and i continue to try to find a way you know to look at doing that we do have some things like that in minnesota more around teacher contracts through something like the the q comp program but it is a difficult piece because rewarding schools who are already doing well they're already getting the results with the funding that they have what other supports do we need to help to be able to give everybody um a true a genuinely fair chance to achieve their version of the american dream and sometimes that costs more Okay, I'm going to go off script for a second because you... <laughs> you just said we were keeping on time. <laughs> but you have jogged my memory on something, and I haven't kept up with some of this, and so I'm, I'm just curious about this. When my family moved to Northfield in 2002, my oldest daughter was in third grade, and um, we were very involved with, with, with the school. And um, the principal of her school was really, really... I'm going to, there's another word for it. He's really bummed out that we were leaving 
because my daughter is an, you know, an intelligent girl and um, she was going to hurt that her leaving was going to hurt test scores, standardized test scores. And it, 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 it really brought home this idea that so many, I don't know if that's the case in 2022 or not, but in 2002, so many schools were teaching for the test mm-hmm. and there was a financial component tied to that. Where are we 20 years later with that, Matt? So as uh, with, this is another one of those issues you could have an entire show on, mm-hmm. and I don't subscribe to either end of the spectrum on this. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is most of the time, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. So what I would say is that um, more often than not, a performance, and it's not true all the way across the board, there's lots of exceptions. When I look at test scores or standardized assessments, whatever there, there are, we are really improving the way that we're able to collect data about how students are performing on mm-hmm. some of the core things that we expect them to be able to know. We know that reading, of course, if you read well by the end of third grade, your future is basically mm-hmm. secure. We understand numeracy and how important that is. We have some some better measures than we've ever had on that, which is great. And those numbers are something that tell me something about what can students do. So I know that when students are able to achieve at a certain level consistently on some of these standardized assessments, I understand that they have the skills um, to be able to start to engage in more deep, complicated, critical thinking, right? So to me, it's not about necessarily what is the number on the piece of paper, because the number on the piece of paper represents a living, uh, breathing human being. And that number can help us understand as part of also relationships are always first, right? No great mm-hmm. learning happens without mm-hmm. great relationship. I forgot yeah. to give you the quote on that, but you start with the relationships, you add the data. We have to have expectations. We have to have metrics. That's reasonable, right? That's it's a, the reasonable person says it's fair to have that. Do I think people still take a look at, um, you know, how does a district perform on some of those standardized? Sure they do, because when they're looking at 30 different communities, maybe to live in, that might be something that they look at. Mm -hmm. Um, Anybody who's looking for a school, I suggest that the first thing you do is you walk in, you talk to the principal, and I will tell you, most people, you can feel within just a few minutes in a school building what the culture is like, right? Most people want their kids to come home from school feeling good, right? That they had a good, that they have friends, that they are learning, right? It is, it's, that's what parents want. Um, I think parents are more likely to try to capture that than they are just one particular number. But the data is important um, because it does share with us how are we doing as a system in terms of preparing people to engage mm-hmm. in a democratic society. Public education is essential to a functioning democracy. And I take yeah. that very seriously. Mm-hmm. It is an altruistic pursuit that we have. It's the last place, in my opinion, Two opinions. It's, one is that it's, it's one of the last places in our society where everyone comes together, right? In society, we now have so many choices of we can hang out with these people. I can only listen to these particular uh, shows. Public education is one of the last places where everyone comes together in what we would have considered the town square, you know, at one time. And the second part is I would argue with anyone who wants to take this on, public education is, is if not the most, one of the top few um, effective systems of governance, right? When we had everything go out the window in the last couple of years, where did people turn to? They turned to us. Can you take care of our kids, even though we've got to have to be in distance? Can you take care of our kids? Can yeah. you feed our kids extra? Can you uh, make sure that people have the tests that they need in terms of thinking about vaccination? Can you help us with all of those, whether you agree or disagree with any of those things is immaterial. People looked to public schools to be able to deliver on that. And I think that that's another part of what people expect. They expect quality and good governance from their local schools. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, folks, you are listening to Public Policy This Week on uh, KYMN Radio. My name is Rich Larson, uh, sitting here with Joe Moravchik, my co-host this week. And our guest is Dr. Matt Hillman, the Northfield Superintendent of Public Schools. Uh, Matt, you've spoken often uh, about the, uh, the state's education, special education cross-subsidy. Can you tell us what that means? The legislature had had a deal in place this year to address the issue, but it was one of the many deals that disintegrated when when the time ran out on the legislature and they had to uh, adjourn. What would that deal have meant, not just to Northfield, but to districts across the state? And conversely, how detrimental was it when no agreement could be reached on a special session to get things done? We try really hard on this show, Matt, to stay out of politics. Oh, we have to get into it a little bit here. Well, and I'm not even sure it's a... I, I actually uh, think the special session is more about time management, yeah. frankly, than I think it's... A, I mean, I think politics, of course, involved, but I do think that there's... I do think the legislature could do a much better job with time management, like we're going to do on this show today, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> but first of all, let's come back and define what the special education cross-subsidy is. So the special education cross-subsidy is the amount of general fund dollars that we need to use to fill in the gap or pay for mandated, and I would argue morally imperative, services to students with disabilities, right? We have to think about a measure mm-hmm. of society as how do they take care of the people who need the most taken care of. And in, in our uh, society and in, in, in schools, that comes to special education students. So, But the fact is, this is a law that was passed by the federal government. They promised that they would pay around 40%. That was back in the 1970s. They've never gotten close uh, to 20 They got about 20%. It's actually now regressed. And so that's the difference between the amount of funding that we get from the feds and the state for special education and what it costs to deliver those mandated and morally imperative services. So in Northfield, um, on average, over the past several years, we spend about $5 million a year of our general fund money to pay for these required and morally imperative uh, services to students with disabilities. So what does this mean across the state? It's fairly simple. Almost always, it is a significant part of any school's uh, expenditure deficit. So in Northfield, with that, we would have gotten $1.7 million of additional special education funding out of the uh, framework that was agreed to between the, the two parties mm-hmm. um, across the Senate. And when I say parties, I'm talking about the Senate and the House coming together on that. Mm-hmm. Our deficit spend was just about that this year. Yeah. And so the fact is, in many places, it is their deficit spend. Or it's the and or it's the amount of money that they then have to go to their voters to be able to get to fill in the gaps. And of course, different school districts have different abilities for a variety of reasons, tax base, local tax tolerance, you know, all of those kinds of things as to whether those communities can support an operating levy or not. Um, The bottom line is that this is a major issue if we do not fix it. And when I shared this um, earlier this spring, I had someone who had shared with me well, it's going to take some time for them to fix the special education cross-subsidy issue. <laughs> and I, very politely, I said, well, we've been waiting for 45 years. Mm. How much longer should we wait? And that actually, I saw a cognitive shift in that person. That they're like, oh, yeah. oh my goodness. And so uh, this is an issue that we need to take care of. I really would like to see some of the deadlines. I, I understand I, I'm not a huge fan of the omnibus bills. I do understand that the nature of omnibus bills. I, I get all of that part. I wish that the legislature could take some of these issues that uh, the reasonable person can agree on, put them into a single bill, and move them forward. One example 
was the substitute teacher bill that we had early in the session. We all heard, especially in January with so many people ill, mm-hmm. um, we had a shortage of substitute teachers that forced some districts to go distance learning. We did not have to have that issue for a variety, some great management by our administrators, our employees and our teachers just stepping up beyond what should have been expected of them just to make it happen because we wanted to commit that to families. But they had a bill that would have allowed a, a greater cross-section of the public to be able to help in special and uh, substitute teaching roles. If that's not the definition of what you pass, get to the governor and move on. Right. But that was held over. That's, I think, an exemplar. And, of course, when we wait till the end to bring some of these things right. together and then we can't come to agreement, it really does hurt Minnesotans. In this case, um, it, it really is forcing us to even have to look at what other kinds of budget adjustments do we have in our future if we can't fix this. So regarding the substitute teacher issue... Does a substitute teacher have to be certified? Yeah, so in Minnesota, okay. there's a requirement to have a certification, but they have something that's called a short-call substitute certification. Right. If you have a four-year degree, you're able to get that. And in fact, uh, anybody listening uh, throughout the KYMN <laughs> listing area, we will. if you have a four-year degree and you're interested in helping us substitute teach, we will reimburse you for the cost of your license. Um, because that's how much we want to get people into. And even if you could say, I can only maybe do three days a month, that's three days a month better than what we got now, right? So um, that's it is a requirement of a, there's a license in Minnesota. It's at least a short call substitute license. That means you can sub up to 15 days in one classroom, but you could you could sub all 174 days in different classrooms with that license. Yeah, that during that whole COVID where personnel was stretched so thin at times that would have been a great thing to get past and it could have been fixed yeah. and that's i mean i i understand that there's a nature of putting together some bills that are simple with some bills that are complex into the omnibus structure um but i really hope that who whichever parties uh, are in charge of the minnesota legislature next year i really hope that they will consider reforming that because we've seen this movie how many times mm-hmm. and we know how it's going to end and it doesn't usually end well it's it's really time for um, governance is what I'm asking. I'm asking right. for people, people expect us and hold us accountable as a school district to have good governance. I think it's fair to ask mm-hmm. the legislature to do the same. Yeah, good point. Uh, Dr. Hillman, Minnesota lawmakers agreed in 2021 to fund a program to attract and recruit, train and retain teachers of color in Minnesota yeah. to expand the number of teachers of color in our classrooms. Demographics are certainly changing in Minnesota. How important is it to students and to schools to have a program like this that emphasizes recruiting and retaining teachers from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds? And how is recruiting going for the Northfield School District? So we have a tremendous amount of of research talking about how valuable it is for students to see themselves represented in the teaching staff, Mm -hmm. role model, right? That um, people who have been in their particular shoes in a complex society. And so we know that the research is very strong about having um, uh, teachers who look like me in my school is really important. That's I think we that that's settled. I think we can all everybody can agree on that. As you know, I was a police officer in a yes. diverse city, and at the end of my career, I did a lot of hiring, and the same thing rang true. Absolutely, yeah. it's a it's a it's a basic human component, right? Yeah. And. So in Northfield, um, we have long had a strong commitment to diversifying our staff. It can be difficult for us, you know, in terms of being about 40 miles, you know, from the Twin Cities, yeah. but it doesn't, doesn't mean that we give up on it. We keep working hard at it, and our, our uh, selection teams, you know, as we work, we try to recruit a deep pool of diverse candidates to fulfill fill our positions. 
So um, we have worked on this uh, in a number of different ways. We have been a recipient of a Grow Your Own grant. So the state, one of the things the state legislature did get done a year ago was that they expanded the Grow Your Own grant. Um, We partnered with uh, the Northfield Healthy Community Initiative. They have helped us uh, write that grant. We secured it. Um, So we have several hundred thousand dollars over the next few years that we're able to use to help bring local um, professionals of color to be able to get their teaching license. And we have our first five teaching fellows. It's called the Northfield Teaching Fellows Program. You can Google that. You can see it on our website. And we've selected the first five teaching fellows who started this summer. And so those those students get a combination of um, they have to meet several criteria. Um, they need to be a black, indigenous, or person of color. They need to have some connection to the Northfield community. So they either need to live here, mm-hmm. their kids need to go here. Um, they might need to work in our system. So they might be working as a paraprofessional, for example, within our system, but live someplace else. There's got to be some kind of connection to Northfield Public Schools. Then we work on some, uh, There's uh, what we look at is it's called a, a last dollar strategy. So we have people who will help these folks complete financial aid forms to get as much funding from the colleges they're able to get first. And then we do provide some tuition assistance. We also provide some additional stipend to help people with basic needs, like be able to get get to the college. If you have children, you know, we can help you with some childcare kinds of pieces. And then our hope is we, we don't guarantee you, you know, a job within our school system. Um, but we do know that we are going to be able to make sure that our faculty or our selection teams know that these folks came through this program and that we were they were funded by our program. So it doesn't mean you, you're guaranteed a job, but of course you do get some coach, you get some understanding of the system. So you, of course, will have a leg up compared to people who haven't been in the system. So w- with this program, um, you've put it out there. What was it? What? the application pool was it was it substantial are you getting good reaction to it how's that working yeah so to begin with in our first foray into it we had five candidates and all of them we have a standard rubric that we use to be able to determine that all five were good investments to be able to one of the things we want to make sure is if we invest in a person we want to make sure that they're going to be able to complete the process and secure their degree and their teaching license mm-hmm. um, so all five candidates did meet that criteria okay. and so um, we think that five is a great start Across Minnesota, we are all competing for a smaller pool of professionals yeah. um, who are BIPOC, you know, black, indigenous, or people of color. So it's it's not just a matter of recruiting. It's also a matter of retaining and ensuring that we have systems and processes and culture that is set up to uh, make sure that those folks are supported uh, in this work as well. It's not just about re- uh, hiring, right? It's, it's, and it's not even just about the school district. It's about the community. Does the community embrace it, right? Do people make sure that everyone is truly welcome? We talk about that, but yeah. we know that that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the reasons that we have worked Northfield Public Schools with the Northfield Racial, Ethnic, and Equity Coalition to keep working on making sure that we are living out what we say we are and making sure that everyone truly is welcome here. So that's how we're attacking it to this point. It's multi-dimensional chess in terms of making sure that we increase the number of people who have the qualifications to be able to teach. It's also about making sure that we support people on the way to that and making sure there's a community that values and supports folks in that pursuit. Uh, prepping for today, I read a few articles on teacher shortages throughout the nation and here in Minnesota, especially science and math teachers and special education teachers. My mom is 77 years old. She still teaches high school English. She said in the first time in her career, she is seeing teacher shortages in her own school in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Why are there teacher shortages? Have you in Northfield been affected by any teacher shortages? And then I guess, will you have to rethink how you recruit and per- perhaps retain teachers because of the shortage issues? You know, I will uh, tell you, Joe, that it is um, nationwide, it is a crisis. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I don't say that to, um, you know, embellish the situation. Mm-hmm. It is a crisis. And we often hear about teachers, which I'll talk about. But we also know it takes a lot of people to make a school system work every day. In fact, coincidentally, I have on my desk a magazine that on the cover says, superintendent shortage, which uh, <laughs> apparently is good for me. Um, but yeah. the, the fact uh, is, I think that when it comes to public education, I would even expand that to public service in general. We are seeing shortages. In fact, there was a report out of California a couple of years ago that they had seen a 50% decrease in people applying to colleges of education. So hmm. when we're wow. looking at that, the pipeline wow. is, it's, it's not a shock you know, to where we, we know that the baby boomers are retiring. We've known this for a long time, yeah. right? Thankfully, your mother continues. And I think we, we, we had two English positions open earlier this year, Joe. If I had known she was licensed, uh, we would have got her to think about coming to Northfield. <laughs> she's exceptional. She's, yeah. she's one of those teachers that when parents are signing their kids up for classes, I've got to have Maureen Moravchik teaching this English class. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the difference that teachers and public servants can make. And everyone listening to this show can think back to who the teacher was that made a significant difference absolutely. for them. Absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking about that this morning when we were just shooting the ball before the the program. Absolutely. And it, I think that we have, I, I think there's several reasons why where we, we are where we are. Um, and I won't put them in any particular order. So these are just, I don't have them ranked. This okay. is just how I'm, it's right. my stream of uh, thought on how I would frame this. So number one, I do think that we have to let's let's own the elephant in the room to begin with, right? Which is that schools are always microcosms of society. Mm-hmm. So the issues that we face in schools are the issues that we face in society. And while people will lament that schools shouldn't have to deal with it, of course they shouldn't. We shouldn't have to deal with some of these larger controversies that make their way into the school system. But we need to build a bridge and get over it because it will always be that way because. We are a public school, which is representative of the public. So therefore, those kinds of controversies do make their ways into our schools. As much as we try to be able to focus on certain things, these are the kinds of things that if you're if you're talking about it at the water cooler at your work, yeah. guess what? The kids are going to want to talk about it, too, because they at a certain age anyway. So I do think that some of the real challenges that we've had in decorum um, and I think some of the way that people in our modern communication approaches um, believe uh, equates to accountability. I think that might be the nice way to say it. Mm-hmm. I think people look at this and, you know, it's say, why, why would I put myself in that position where, you know, today I'm doing good work and at the end of the week I could be viral because someone thinks I said something or did something that mm-hmm. was offensive. Right. So when we're at the core of that, you know, those kinds of national controversies, I think people look at it and say, you know what? I can go. All, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that other fields are lesser than. I'm just saying they. I could go into banking. I could go into some of these other positions. Frankly, make as much, if not more, money, and I don't have to worry being about the next one on a, a cable news network. You know, next week. So I do think that that right now, especially with the heightened issues that we're seeing, again across all political spectrums, I think that gives people pause. I think we've also are a victim of some of our success mm-hmm. in the fact that we have for the last. 
uh, well, I think you, you go back to just after Sputnik and the focus on mathematics and science. And then we've had a resurgence in uh, career technical education push in the last few years that we need engineers and we, um, we need scientists. And we have people who are going into all of those things, which is great. But when people go into those other things, um, you know, they certainly then aren't necessarily going into teaching. And um, salary does play a role. We're very proud here in Northfield that we did get our starting teaching salary up to $50,000. My first contract was like $24,000, I think, back <laughs> yep. in 1995. Yep. Um, but the fact is, you know, we people do understand. People say, well, it's only a nine-month contract. Well, people still have to work in the summer, right? And a lot of people spend time in the summer preparing for the school year. The teaching part is is one of those things. So is the, is the shortage thing us? It is. We've been very blessed that we've been able to fill almost all of our positions. If you're listening, we still have one special education teaching position open, and we also have a long-term health position open in terms of teaching staff. So go to northfieldschools.org forward slash employment <laughs> and make your application today. Uh, so we've been, we've been very lucky right on the front of teachers. But I will tell you, when I was an elementary school principal in Belt Plain, if I had a second grade opening... I easily had between 300 and even as much as 500 applications for that position. We have far fewer than that today. I would have never thought I would say this statement. I have talked to multiple superintendents who are getting zero applicants for physical education for gym yeah, teachers. It's hard to believe. Just a, lot of, a lot of coaches are physical ed teachers. Yeah. Well, and we're, we're seeing less and less teachers who are willing to coach. And that's an, it's another interest. We could talk about that later. Where we're also getting really hammered is, frankly, in our non-teaching positions. So, you know, we do have at least 10 paraprofessional positions. Uh, we call them educational assistants in our district open right now. Um, we have a need for substitutes. We have been fortunate. We've gotten great candidates for things like administrative assistant work, um, great candidates in decent pools for our custodial. Many school districts really struggle with that. Um, many districts, the bus drivers are a huge issue here. Thankfully, uh, John and their team out at Benjamin Bus have been able to continue to recruit and retain high-quality bus drivers, but it's across every segment. Uh, for us in Northfield right now, it's it's the educational assistant piece that is really the most difficult. Did this trend start before COVID, uh, or was it COVID that really probably started this? I think, well, I know that the trend started before COVID. Okay. Um, COVID exacerbated it yeah. for for a variety. All, we have had a mass societal disruption, and we know that after mass, you can look back at a number of them in history. We know that there's a reshuffling of people because people take stock of their lives. They take stock of what they want to do. There's obviously disagreement about a number of things related to how the pandemic has been addressed across society. Um, so again, I think it, sometimes it comes back to that those pieces of national concern that sometimes people struggle with but this was on track before the pandemic and i think one of the things that we can do uh, to really turn that train around is to talk about how teachers made a difference for us right i mean talk about those people who made this difference in our lives and that um, it's something that is an honorable and necessary you know career and we need to treat our educators with respect and just too many of them are not feeling respected that's a great point Go ahead, okay, uh, uh, it is a great point, and I think, frankly, the uh, the disrespect of teachers. I, I know that that goes goes that's far uh, prior to COVID nineteen. I mean, that was I, I've always been offended by uh, a, a saying that I used to hear when I was a kid that those who can't teach, right? Um, th there is a there is a I don't know if there's still there or not. There used to be a stigma about being a teacher, and th th I, which is completely unfair. 
by the way. I've always thought that. But, you know, it's it's because it's been a lower paid job and because it's, you know, in a, well, I don't want to get too deep into this, but there is a thing. And I, I hope that's changing. Am I, am, am I right in that the perception has changed? Yeah, I always said that, you know, those who can do and those who can do better teach. That's the phrase I like. I um, but the Be- uh, best role models I ever had were teachers, absolutely. Well, now coaches. Question. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I think that it's a... Um, I, I, I do think that that has changed for the better in, in a lot of ways, but really just, um, so I want to be super clear. Um, as you said before, I'm, as I've t- I tell people all the time, that I am from New York. You cannot hurt my feelings, right? It's very <laughs> difficult to hurt my feelings, right? But what I would, and we want feedback and we thrive off of critical feedback, where we, where we see is when uh, feedback or uh, things or what I would call drive-by and they're they're personal, yeah. and I'm going to use the term you know rude. Um, it's certainly appropriate, and we welcome, we want account, we seek accountability. That's important, very important, because it's the core of our continuous improvement model in our school district. But the fact is that we need to treat each other with respect. And I have no problem. In fact, we want. In fact, one of the things I'm going to try to do this year is teach people to complain. Because people don't know how to complain anymore, right? Because it's I can just shoot something out into the uh, ethos of the Sniping, interweb, yeah. and I can be tough mm-hmm. behind a keyboard. And then when we invite you in to talk about the issue, people very rarely show up. Those things. This is a relationship-based um, industry, and it's very retail in that way, right? We really need to have these strong relationships with people. So I would say that um, if we just, you know, just really try to think about the rhetoric, we ha- and, and people wonder why our our children are struggling with this it's because they have terrible role models we as adults have been terrible role models in how we communicate with people who we have a concern with or we have a disagreement with um this is not about not disagreeing this is about disagreeing but being thoughtful that we are all in community right and you can hold people to think about also think about i asked the both of you to think about the person who was your best supervisor what research tells us is the best supervisors hold their people accountable, but they don't do it in the way that we might see on. It's not the, you know, the, the we're going to really uh, slam you to the wall. It's because they were what I, there's a term I've learned lately that I love called being a warm demander. You know that I care about you deeply and I'm holding you accountable at the same time and you want to do better for me, right? So I ask folks to be warm demanders of us, right? Mm-hmm. To tell it like, tell us like it is. But also understand that we're here problem solving together. This is not an us against them and, you know, educators versus, uh, you know, the, the community. We, if we're going to be successful, we have to do it together. And I think we just need to think about how would I want to be treated if I was in this circumstance? Mm-hmm. We have a chain of responsibility. We have a way for handling com- complaints. But this is the kind of thing that if I were to share... Um, if I were to share some of the messages that some of some people have gotten, even in our district where I think people are pretty thoughtful, um, we're not dealing with nearly what I, what I hear from other places, people would be embarrassed. Yeah. And so this goes to the point of why do we have a shortage? And it's because I do think that we have had um, a conversation about the value of public education and the value of all public service in general and something that does relate to funding, right, is mm-hmm. that if we value something – we will fund it, and then we will also expect the return on that investment. And that's what Minnesotans should expect. They should expect there's only two things in the state constitution that requires the legislative legislative funding, roads and schools. Mm-hmm. So it's no shock that public K-12 education is the 
uh, one of the biggest buckets in the state uh, budget. Right. There should be an expectation for the return on that investment. It is always, isn't always readily visible uh, mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, but I do think that if we can get back to, I'm not talking about putting people on pedestals and that we don't do anything wrong. We do things wrong every day, right? But let's at least have a, a reasonably constructive and civil conversation about it. Isn't yeah. that what the objective, the primary objective of our that, program is? That is the lofty goal of this show is to, to try to teach a little respect and show a little respect between people who uh, don't see everything absolutely eye to eye. Matt, thank you it's very much for being with us today. Now, I, I You've got a couple of minutes left here. I've got one item for you. What is it that we didn't ask you about that we need to talk about? So I do think that I mentioned it a little bit, but um, there's two pieces I'd like people to be aware of. Number one is in Minnesota, we do have um, inequities between school districts and how much they are able to raise through local levies because of the difference in tax basis. Mm -hmm. So for people who are interested in policy, I'd encourage you to think about looking at um, tax equalization bills where the state will help buy down some of that cost to local property taxpayers. I think that's an important thing for people to look at because, for example, Northfield taxpayers pay much more to generate the same amount of money as another district that might have more industry, like a inner ring Twin City suburb. And then I think we all need to come around the notion that um, early childhood education is an outstanding investment. We really need to be truly looking at this as an E12 system as opposed to a K-12 system. Because we know, especially when we can intervene early, if we can have those uh, those kindergarten readiness pieces, that we can take that handoff and we can make sure uh, that students are able to achieve. And so we really need to seriously understand the substantial return on investment that early childhood education in a variety of formats uh, can have. And it's not just about the money, right? It's also about opportunity. It is also about being prepared and having choices, you know, when you graduate. Right. Okay. All right. Um, folks, that's, that's going to do it for this week's edition of, of public policy this week. Um, we're your hosts, Joe Moravchek and Rich Larson. want to thank Dr. Hillman one more time for being a part of the show today. If you like the show, please tell your family, tell your friends, just really just tell anybody, you know, about this show. Remember that it is our hope that this show will give, uh, will get us back to having meaningful in-depth and civil conversations about public policy challenges, the kinds of challenges that we all share together as Minnesotans. We want our listeners to be informed by facts and data, to hear from policy experts, and to be able to use that information to make the best personal decisions when considering what can be highly complex policy issues. We'll have more shows about public education in the coming weeks. In fact, we're going to talk about funding higher education uh, in just about a month. So tune in each Friday morning at 10 a.m. or find us on your favorite podcast platform. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.